Merry Christmas. Uh, it is uh, so good to, to have all of you uh, with us uh, today. I'm excited for us to spend time in God's Word, um, <clears throat> as well as uh, for us to come now to the close of Advent and, uh, and truly, uh, truly treasure Christ as we've been looking at Him from, from the book of Isaiah. Uh, I don't know if, um, if you finished your Christmas shopping yet. Um, if you haven't, you're probably somewhat stressed um, sitting in here and uh, appreciate me bringing it up to cause you some more stress. But uh, I read somewhere that yesterday uh, was, uh, was expected or anticipated to be the busiest uh, shopping day uh, of the year in terms of brick and mortar uh, stores. So lots of uh, last minute shopping and um, and, you know, sometimes I love, I love shopping online. I love the convenience of buy online, pick up in store, all those things. But there's something about walking around and perusing and spending money on things that you don't need, uh, that you weren't thinking about before uh, you got in the store. But then you find it and you're like, this is the thing. This is the one. Um, but uh, one of the things I love about uh, shopping and Christmas time and, and the whole aspect of, of gift giving is, is just the ability to really get a gift that that uh, that just demonstrates your love for someone like it's not so much the size of the gift right uh, or the or the price of the gift but like when you when you really know what what will be meaningful to someone uh, and you're able to get them that gift like I, I've learned more about this type of meaningful gift giving from my wife who just loves to uh, to kind of understand uh, what will um, what will be a, a blessing to a person and then seeks to find a gift that uh, gets that uh, just for them. Uh, and so because of that, sometimes when I think about getting her a gift, especially because I know how thoughtful she is, like I, I want to get her the perfect gift. And so this usually results in me uh, either overspending what we agree to spend on one another or, um, you know, coming up with something that's, you know, beyond reasonable because I, I want to get the, the perfect gift. Um, and in some ways, our passage today uh, is is kind of like that that gift that you're searching for. It's just it's the perfect gift, and you want to deliver it. Like it's a passage that's so rich and so meaningful that you want it to be delivered and received as rich and as meaningful as it truly is. Um, and and in some ways, there's so much in our passage that we won't be able to say today. And there's so much in our passage that it should mean to us that we won't fully be able to grasp today. But it's the gift that I want to give to you and for it to be received as the perfect gift. Um, when people describe Isaiah 53, the passage that we're going to be in uh, today, they, they don't shy away from uh, hyperbole or perhaps uh, the great grander statements that describe Isaiah 53 show us how significant this passage is to our understanding of the good news of great joy that was announced when the angels told the shepherds to run to Bethlehem to see the birth of Jesus. One uh, preacher from of old, Charles Spurgeon, said that Isaiah 53 is a Bible in miniature, the gospel in its essence. Uh, another commentator says that the most central, the deepest, the loftiest thing that the Old Testament prophecy has ever achieved is found right here in Isaiah 53. He said, Isaiah 53 is written as if the writer was sitting beneath the cross on Golgotha. Um, <clears throat> another commentator says, without exaggeration, it's the most important text of the Old Testament. 
It's so rich, so meaningful, uh, so valuable for us to understand the cross. And we get a chance to peer into the glorious promise of God sending a suffering servant to deliver us from our sins. In many ways, this is what Advent is all about. You don't have the cradle without the shadow of the cross, without the work that Jesus came to do in dying in our place and for our sin. Somebody has said that somebody may preach the message better, but there is no better message than this. God in our place for our sins. This is the message of Isaiah 53. And what we've been doing over the last few weeks in this Advent series that we're calling Treasuring Christ in Isaiah is looking at some select passages in the book of Isaiah that that help us uh, get a a glimpse and an understanding of of who Jesus is and what uh, he uh, has come to do, what the the promises of God, uh, uh, what promises God makes in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus. We, we looked at Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, and we saw that, that God is God with us, that, that God promised to send a, a child born of a virgin to be Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Isaiah 9, we, we see that the child will come and, and will bring light to those who sit in darkness. In Isaiah 35, we see that God is our everlasting joy, that He's bringing a salvation that produces within us an everlasting joy. He's giving us Himself, which produces our greatest joy. And then we saw last week in Isaiah 42, the introduction of this mysterious figure called the servant. Is it Israel? Is it, is it that one is to come? And we, we see that there's this uh, definitely an idea of a representative, one who represents Israel, and yet is the individual promised deliverer that God is going to use to bring about salvation for his people. And we see that God is, is for his glory, and in being for his glory, he is ultimately for us. All of these these messages that we've been looking at in Isaiah, God with us, God our everlasting joy, and God for us, uh, really come together in the surrounding context of Isaiah 53. So if, if you look at Isaiah uh, starting in chapter 50 uh, up to our passage, we see some of these themes brought out. Uh, I've put some of these verses on the screen here for us. Isaiah 50 verse 10, uh, we see uh, that, that God says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of a servant? Let him who walk, walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Remember the, the baby that was to be born, a son that is given to us in Isaiah 9, is the one who will bring light to those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 51.4, God speaking about uh, this redemption that he's going to bring. He says, give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me. And he uses the language of Isaiah 42 that we looked at last week. I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near me. My arm will judge the people. This is is almost a quote from Isaiah 42 verse 6. The the coastlands hope for me and for my arm they wait. The, The nations that are far out are awaiting God to bring this redemption and God will deliver. And then Isaiah 51, 11 is a direct quote of Isaiah 35, 10. 
where God says, The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion. Redemption, when, when you come to know Christ in many ways, it's like coming home. It's like coming to that which you've always longed for, the place that you were made for. You get to come back home to be in relationship with our Creator and Savior God. So they return to Zion with singing, Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the, the joy that we sing about in joy to the world. No more let sin and sorrow reign. Joy is coming. What, what this speaks of is that uh, we will obtain gladness and joy. It, it's, it's like there's this gladness and joy that we've been searching for our whole lives. And God is promising one day we'll finally have it. And, and we've seen throughout Isaiah that there's both this near and this far fulfillment. I, Isaiah doesn't make clear that the promises of God that he makes in Isaiah, uh, it, it looks as if there's just one coming that God is going to bring all these things about. But as we see it unfold throughout the scriptures and throughout history and the coming of Jesus, we see that God has done in the middle of time, in part, what everyone was expecting God to do at the end of time. He, he came in the middle of time through Jesus in his first coming, the, the first advent that we remember and, and celebrate. That he brought about this salvation and redemption from sin. But we still wait and we still long for God to make full and complete the redemption that he has promised. And God has promised that Jesus will come again. And when Jesus comes again, he will bring about the full redemption that God has promised. Everything sad will come untrue. God will be for us our everlasting joy and we will enjoy him fully and freely forever. So all of these themes come together in Isaiah 53 and we can say that God ultimately came to be with us that he might die in our place. That God can be to us our everlasting joy because he suffered for us in our place. And God is fully and forever for us. And we know it's true because he was willing to come and die in our place and for our sins. So Isaiah, starting in Isaiah 40, we, we have this, um, this kind of framing of the issue of, of how is God going to bring comfort to his people? How is God going to bring redemption to his people? When, when Catch this, here's the problem. The problem is that God's arm is not too short to save. That's not the problem. God is able to save. Here's the problem. The people don't have ears to hear. The people's hearts are hard. The people are living in rebellion. God is promising to bring about a restoration and deliverance from exile in Babylon. This is historically what it's talking about. There's this day coming when God's going to bring Israel out of Babylon. But the problem has never been about their physical location. The problem has always been about their spiritual condition. Right? And that's, we, we're just like Israel. We think our problem is our physical location and circumstances. And no doubt, uh, there, are, there are issues that we, we all should have to address and look at in our lives. But the, the priority that we should, we should examine in ourselves is what about our spiritual condition? Where do we stand in relation to God? And God is, is saying in Isaiah, starting especially here in chapter 40, but ultimately throughout, that, that He's going to bring about redemption rescue for us, for, for those who are guilty because of sin. And, and part of the answer to how God is going to do it lies in this promised servant. There are four servant songs or chapters that you can see in Isaiah. 
Isaiah 42, which we looked at, Isaiah 49, uh, which is similar to chapter 42, Isaiah 50 and Isaiah 53, or ultimately 42, starting in chapter 42, verse 13, throughout the rest of chapter 53. It's this servant that's at the center of God's promise of redemption. So here's the question that Isaiah 53 raises. How can the gracious promises of God come true for guilty people? How can the gracious promises of God come true for guilty people? And and here's the assumption that I'm going to make that I hope isn't too offensive to you. Um, That's us. The guilty people is us. How can we know and be confident that we can experience the gracious promises of God? And the answer, most simply in Isaiah 53, is the suffering servant. The suffering servant. Last week in Isaiah 42, we saw that that God reveals his glory through the servant. He, He makes who he is known to us through this servant. And the the work that this servant does will bring about a global worship. Uh, God is a global God worthy of global worship. That's what Isaiah 42 is telling us. Isaiah 53 says that this God who reveals his glory and brings about global worship does it in the most unexpected way. Not through power. Not through ruling and conquering all of Israel's enemies though he was worthy and could have done so. He does it through coming to suffer and coming as a suffering servant. Look at Isaiah 52, verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And many were astonished at you. Now speaking directly about the servant, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and from beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For, what, uh, for that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. Just like we just sang, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces and he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, verse 4 says, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I I want us to look and, and just walk through what Isaiah 53 says about this servant. And then I want to make the connection of how Isaiah 53 finds its true and ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And then apply that truth to, to our understanding of the cross and the Christian life. That's, that's where we're ultimately going to go. But, but look how verse 13 begins. Behold my servant. Look upon God's servant. 
See what it says about him. Verses 13 begins with his exaltation. In many ways, the chapter begins with the end. It says that he is, he shall act wisely and he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. To act wisely, that statement is to be successful. He knows what he came to do and he was able to accomplish it. And because of this, he is high and lifted up. If you were to have been reading through Isaiah, this language of high and lifted up is the language that Isaiah uses when he encounters God in Isaiah 6. It's the language of being in God's presence. When, when, God has, when Isaiah has a vision of God in Isaiah 6, it says that he sees God in the temple on his throne, high and lifted up, and his robe fills, the train of his robe fills the temple with the glory of the Lord. The servant is exalted in the same manner that God is exalted in Isaiah 6. But, but what brings about this exaltation? And this is, the, this is the paradox of the Christian life. This exaltation, high and lifted up, exalted over all, is because the servant suffers. Look what it says in verse 14. As many were astonished at you, in some ways, verses 14 and 15, the first part of 14 and the first part of 15 are what go together. As many were astonished at you, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Say so shall uh, five times. See if you can do that. Um, it's saying that uh, many were astonished at him. How, why were they astonished? They were astonished because his appearance was marred beyond human semblance. His Form beyond that of the children of mankind. This is describing a suffering that's, that's brutal. Through, through violence, he will be marred. Isaiah 50, the other servant song, says uh, of the servant that the servant speaking in first person, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This is a, a, a great suffering that comes upon the servant. And through this suffering, it says he will sprinkle many nations. So what does that mean, right? It's sprinkle like, you know, like you, you try to get a cat off the, the counter and you sprinkle some water on it. No, no, no. This is, this is what God says about the priest in, uh, in the Old Testament, where they, they make clean the unclean through the sprinkling of water. They prepare the altar for the sacrifice, for the forgiveness of sins through sprinkling the altar with the blood of the lamb. Even the priests themselves, in order to enter into the presence of God, had to be sprinkled with water to be clean. See, what Isaiah is saying here is through the suffering of the servant, God is going to make those who are unfit for God's presence, unworthy to enter God's presence, be able to freely and fully enter and enjoy the presence of God. And when you think about this, you can't but be astonished. Look what it says in verse 15. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has been told of them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. How can this be that God would bring about such a great work through such a terrible suffering? God's plan of deliverance and rescue hinges upon this suffering servant. In verse, verses 1 through 3, we not only see his, his exaltation, but now we see his rejection. 
if you look in, in verse 1, it carries on what it was talking about there at the end of verse 15 of chapter 53. It says, who has believed what he has heard from us? Can you believe that this is how God has chosen to orchestrate the, the grand symphony of redemption? That he struck this note, the note of suffering, to bring about redemption. Who has believed this and, and whom has the arm of the, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is a reference to God's work of redemption. It's God bringing redemption. And God's work of redemption is revealed through this suffering servant. And, and it goes on to continue to describe not only his suffering, but his rejection. Look at, look at what it says in verse 2. He grew up before him. Before the Lord, like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was ordinary. This servant that God was promising was going to come and be ordinary, without much distinction, no particularly desirable characteristics or features about him, no pomp or circumstance at his birth, but a humble servant. This is the promised servant. But not only is he so ordinary, which as God so often does throughout the scriptures, right? I was just reading this week in 1 Samuel. If you know the story of how God chooses a king for the nation of Israel, um, <clears throat> the people choose Saul because he was tall and handsome, kind of like myself. You know, they looked at him and they said, this, this is the guy, right? Um, and, <clears throat> but it's, it says that God doesn't look at things like that. And when God wanted to bring about the, the king that he desired for the people of Israel, he tells Samuel to go to the house of Jesse. And Jesse has seven sons. And six of them are kind of like Saul, pretty impressive. And so all six of the sons come before Samuel. And God's speaking to Samuel and saying about every single one of them, nope, it's not the one, nope, it's not the one, nope, that's not the one. I don't look at things like you look at things. I don't look at the external, I look at the internal. And uh, the, one of the sons doesn't even come to the parade. And uh, Samuel's like, uh, Jesse, you guys have, a, you guys have another son? Uh, like, yeah, I mean, you know, you don't want to see him. He's out in the fields taking care of the sheep. He's like, no, no, bring him. And it says, this is the one, David. David is the one that God chose. Nothing to look at. No pomp or circumstance. No distinction Nothing desirable, it seems, about him as, as we evaluate things. But God does something that we don't expect. Through the ordinary, he brings about his servant. And then it says in verse 3, it sums it up, he was despised and rejected. Ordinary, and yet the response to him is so strong. Despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. People hide their faces from him. And once more, it emphasizes it again. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Esteem is an accounting word. It's when you look at something and you make a calculation. To esteem him not is to say they look at the servant and they deem him as nothing, not worthy of considering. He's rejected. And here's the hard news about all of this. It's already hard to hear what God's going to do, what this servant is going to endure. But in many ways, when, when we see the rejection of the servant, it tells us a lot less about the servant and a lot more about those rejecting him. It speaks a lot more of the condition of our own hearts that when God provides for us the means of our salvation, 
we would look at it, he's saying, the people will look at that provision and say, nah, not interested. I think sometimes we read, we read the New Testament and we look at how Jesus shows up and is doing his ministry and we're like, how could they not see it? Like, how could they not see what Jesus is doing, how he's the fulfillment of all these things? His grace, his mercy, his kindness, the way he taught people, the way he drew near to those who are suffering and hurting. And yet here's the, here's the problem. God provides and we don't deem his provision as worthy of our attention. God comes to us as a suffering servant, but our rejection of him actually speaks more to the condition of our own hearts. We see his exaltation, his rejection, and then we see his sacrificial suffering. Verses four through six are the heart of this passage. Just just listen to them once more. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Notice the he we distinction. This is what he did, the suffering servant for us. This, this is the picture of substitution. Him in our place. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And it was with his stripes that we are healed. This is the picture of a sacrificial substitute. This is what every sacrifice in the Old Testament was pointing to. That a substitute, a a perfect lamb was brought to the altar in the place of sinners to make right sinners with a righteous and holy God. How can you sum up the suffering servant's work? How would you put it together in a short statement? Let me, let me suggest this. In our place, for our sins. This is what the suffering servant does. In our place, substitute. For our sins, sacrifice. A sacrifice that takes away the guilt and the judgment that we deserve for our sin. Verse 10 says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. And when his soul made an offering for guilt, that's, that's the picture. Through his suffering, it's not merely an example. This suffering servant has not come to, to teach us the way of sacrificial service. No doubt we could draw that application, but this servant has come not as an example alone, but as a sacrifice, as a guilt offering to take away our guilt before God. And verse 6 explains once more our dire condition. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verses 7-9 through tell us of his innocence and his willingness to be sacrificed. On our behalf, like a sheep going to the slaughter, like, like a silent who, a lamb who's silent before its shearers. Like a, uh, <clears throat> it says in verse 9 that, that he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. You see, he's, he's not suffering because of any fault of his own, but he's suffering because of our sin, because of our fault. 
And he does so innocently and willingly. And then in verse, verses 10 through 12, we see this news of his victory. Once more, ending where we began, his, his exaltation. God will bring about redemption through this substitutionary sacrifice. It says that he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many, making intercession for the transgressors. What is the victory that the servant enjoys? The victory is our redemption. It says that he, uh, in verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. It says that not only will he die as a guilt offering, but his soul shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. This is... This is the resurrection that this is speaking of. That there's a, a death that happens, but then there's a resurrection that's coming. That his days will be prolonged and he will see and be satisfied with the fruit of his redemptive work. And the fruit of his redemptive work are all those who will trust in his sacrifice. He will see and be satisfied in those who believe in him. As we said last week, the servant's triumph, the, service, the servant's suffering and triumph is for our good. That we might be made righteous, justified, made right with God. Our iniquities covered, our sin forgiven, and a new and right relationship with God established. This is a suffering servant. It's been killing me to, to talk about this suffering servant without saying, this is Jesus. This is him. And don't take my word for it. Here's, here's what I want to do in the next few minutes. I want you to behold Jesus from the New Testament and see how the New Testament points to Isaiah 53 and shows us that Jesus is the suffering servant. In John 12 and Romans 10, we see that Jesus is the arm of the Lord rejected by men. In Isaiah 53, John 12, it says that even after Jesus had performed many signs in the presence of the people, they still would not believe in him. He, he was just like the suffering servant who was who was coming in an ordinary way and yet was rejected and despised. It says that this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In Paul's letter to the church at Rome, he quotes Isaiah 53, along with numerous other Old Testament passages, to show that God came, God sent Jesus to redeem Israel. We talked about this last week, a covenant for the people, for Israel, and a light to the nations. He came first to the Jew and then to the Greek, those who are without, outside of the people of Israel. And, and here was the problem. The problem was that God came... But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? And how will they believe the message? Verse 16 shows us. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And what message is it that Isaiah 53 is pointing forward to? It's the message or the word about Christ. About Jesus the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, we see that Jesus' life and ministry 
was a fulfillment of what we see in Isaiah 53. It says in Isaiah 53 that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. It says in, in verses 4 through 6 that, that he uh, bore, uh, was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It says that he, by his stripes, we are healed. What is, what is that about? Well, Matthew shows us that when Jesus came into Peter's house and he saw Peter's mother lying in the bed with a fever, he touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. And when evening came, many who were demon possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and he healed all the sick. And Matthew says that this was the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 when it says he took upon himself our infirmities and bore our diseases. The, the redemptive work of God is a, is a holistic redemptive work. It's a work that touches all of us holistically in our physical, emotional, spiritual capacity. We see Jesus shows us this glimpse of what's to come through his ministry of healing and casting out demons. I believe God can and still does it today. But I also believe that when, when he doesn't, we know and we can await that God will one day make all things right. And all our diseases and all our sickness will fly away. Matthew 8 shows us that Jesus is the suffering servant who takes upon himself our infirmities and, and bears our diseases. And it's not just physically. Peter, in, in his book, 1 Peter, in chapter 2, takes us right to the heart of the gospel. And he says, if you want to understand the gospel, all you need to do is read Isaiah 53. It says in verse uh, chapter 2, verses 19 through 15, it's commendable if someone bears up the, under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? He's, he's applying this to the suffering of the Christians at the time. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, that's commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. That's Isaiah 53. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And this just wasn't for our example. Listen to what he says now. He himself bore our sins. How did the suffering servant bear our sins? How, how did the suffering servant experience the chastisement for our sin? He did so when his body was hung upon the cross. So that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you are like sheep going astray. But now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. We were like sheep, Isaiah said. Peter agreed. And the only way we can find our way back is to come to the shepherd and overseer of our souls who doesn't just show us the way, but laid down his life that we might find the way back to him. Matthew and Luke tell us that when Jesus stood on trial before Pontius Pilate and, and Herod, though he was mocked and beaten and crowned with a, a crown of thorns and they spat upon him, he didn't open his mouth. He was a suffering servant. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And in Acts chapter 8, verses 32 through 35, you remember that scene where, where Philip is, uh, is going about sharing the gospel and God says, hey, see that, that uh, chariot? I want you to go talk to the person in the chariot. And Peter, uh, Philip, runs up alongside the chariot. And, and there in the chariot, there's a eunuch who is an official in, in the Ethiopian uh, royal family. And it says that this eunuch was reading from the Old Testament. And what was he reading? Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken or cut off from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, he says, Tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? And it says that Philip, beginning from that passage, explained to him from the Old Testament the good news about Jesus. When Philip had the opportunity to talk to another person who was reading Isaiah 53, and he said, who is this about? Is it Isaiah or someone else? Philip said, it's about someone else. And let me tell you about him. His name is Jesus. And then finally, Jesus' own words in Luke chapter 22, verses 36 through 38, and the Gospel of Luke on the, the last night before Jesus' crucifixion, when he was gathered with his disciples was preparing them for what was about to come, the, the chaos that would come when he would be betrayed and arrested and go on to suffer. Remember, he had been clear throughout, throughout the Gospels. Jesus has clearly stated again and again, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise on the third day. And he says to his disciples, but now you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. If you don't have a sword... And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. For it is written, he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you, this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Isaiah 53 wasn't just what the early church understood to be about Jesus. It was what Jesus understood to be true about himself. He was the suffering servant. He would suffer in our place and for our sin. We come back to our question. How can the gracious promises of God come true for guilty people? Jesus. In our place. For our sin. This is the message of the gospel. This, this is really what Christmas is all about. It was his birth, but we can't understand his birth apart from his death and his resurrection. You could say that Isaiah 53, which is a passage, no doubt, about Christ's coming, about the, the promised Savior, teaches us both about the cross and the Christian life. If I could sum it up this way, it teaches us about the cross. Like I want us to understand and be rooted deeply in an understanding of what God accomplished on the cross. Right? Like It's, it's not just a... Um, something that adorns our necks or hangs in our houses, but, but it is the center of the Christian faith. The cross is everything to the Christian because it's on the cross that God accomplishes our salvation. And to understand the cross, you have to understand substitution, right? We, we looked at this just a moment ago. That substitution is, is how we understand 
the cross and how we understand salvation. You could, in many ways, say it teaches us both about sin and salvation. Right? Sin is why the cross was necessary. Salvation is what God accomplishes through the cross. Sin is when we substitute ourselves in the place of God. Salvation is when God substitutes himself in our place. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for humanity and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Substitution is at the heart of the cross. All of us have gone astray. All of us turn to our own way. That's sin. That's what the Bible calls sin. But God doesn't leave us in our guilty, condemned condition. But he plans to send a suffering servant who not only models love for us, but bears our own sin on his behalf. I love this description. Rejection was his. Acceptance is ours. The wounding was his. The healing is ours. The stripes were his. The salvation is ours. The price paid was his. The forgiveness is ours. And finally, the death was his. But life is ours. This is the understanding of the cross. Substitutionary sacrifice in our place for our sins. Somebody says, Michael, or fill in your name. I hope they don't call you Michael unless your name's Michael. How do you explain what the gospel is all about? How do you explain what Christianity is all about? God, in our place, for our sins. That's what it's all about. But it also shows us what the Christian life is about, right? To, to, to understand the cross, the entryway into the Christian life, it doesn't just stop there, but the, the cross defines us as a people. We are a cross-shaped people, defined and marked off by the cross. And when we think about what that means, if we're honest, honestly, this part of the Christian life is what's so challenging, I think. It's, it's what, what makes many of us uncomfortable with working out the Christian life. It's what makes community necessary because we often don't see the ways in which our life is not cross-shaped, but often world-shaped, right? It's, it's, it's the thing that, that some people, when they think about following Christ and they think about the call and the cost of following him, it gives them pause, Am I willing to count the cost to follow Christ? The Christian life is, is a dying to self that we might live to Christ. The Christian life is humbly serving in the pattern of our Savior. Right? If, if our Savior was a suffering servant and the, the servant isn't greater than the master, what must be true of us? We too must be a people who serve in the pattern of our Savior substitutionary sacrifice is the pattern of the whole Christian life. Look, look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The Christian life is cross-shaped. Our generosity, we give in order to meet the needs of others. Substitution us in the place of others. Sacrifice. Love. We know that love is is the giving of ourselves for the good of another. Have you ever loved someone? 
I know you have. You're willing to sacrifice yourself for their good. If you're a parent, you know what that's like. If you're a child, you've received that love. A dear friend, you've given for their sake, for their good, even at great cost to yourself. All of that pales in comparison to the sacrificial love of God for us. But it's the very pattern of how we should live our lives. Giving of ourselves to meet the needs of others. Willing to, to step into the shoes of those who, who suffer and experience, whether it be injustice or hard circumstances, and, and step into their shoes. Giving of ourselves for their good. Service in the Christian life is patterned after the cross. Sacrificing our time, our energy, and our resources for the good of others. We could go on. The Christian life is marked by the cross. C.S. Lewis He said it this way. He said, this principle runs throughout all of life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Now, to be fair, Jesus really said that. You know, he's just summarizing. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, death of your body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. The belief that our answers lie within us and looking out for ourselves, C.S. Lewis says, and ultimately Jesus says, will not lead to what we're ultimately looking for. But in the end, look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. This is the Christian life, dying to self, giving away ourselves for Christ and for the sake of others. And in so doing, it's it's another paradox. God's salvation comes through suffering and our greatest good and glory comes through our own sacrificial service, through our own laying down of our life for Christ and for others. The cross and the Christian life are defined by this suffering servant, by Jesus in our place and for our sins. And as we come now to the end of Advent and to Christmas that we'll celebrate in just three days, I want you to remember what the angels said to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. They told the shepherds to go to the inn, out to to the stable, and to, to find the promised Savior lying there, wrapped in swat, swaddling cloths, lying in the place where the lambs were kept. Just think about it. The, the beauty of this picture, that God entered into the world, not in a palace, not with great pomp and circumstance, But he entered into the world weak and vulnerable as a baby, just like it was promised in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9. And the place where the sacrificial lambs were kept. Gathered around him as he was lying in the manger were those sheep, were those lambs. And it shows us the birth of Christ, the manger in the shadow of the cross. This is the glory of Christmas. Not only that he came, but that he came to suffer in our place and for our sin. This is what Christmas is about. Jesus in our place for our sin. Let's pray.